Hey, good morning, church. Man, I've been looking forward to this since, since last Sunday. What a great opportunity to get together. Man, I'm, I'm also looking forward to our Guyana crew coming back sometime this afternoon. They um, arrived in Toronto last night, spent the evening uh, debriefing from their great trip together, and then are traveling this way and... Um, we've got one on that trip and uh, are excited to hear all that God has done in her life <clears throat> throughout the last week and a half. So uh, they'll be reporting to us in the future and we're excited to hear not only what God did for them in the lives of those people there, but what God did in the lives of our young people. So thank you for your part in partnering uh, with us with them. So go ahead and take your device, if you would, or your copy of the scriptures, and let's turn to the book of Ruth together, Ruth in chapter 2. And so if you have your device, your electronic device, your phone, whatever it may be, um, just type in Ruth in chapter 2, and if you type in the letters NIV after, then we'll be reading the same words, because that's the translation of the scriptures I read from, from up here. And if you uh, have a copy of the scriptures with you, it's the eighth book of the Bible, and uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And that's where we are this morning in the book of Ruth in chapter 2. Last week, we found there were two widows, Orpah and Ruth, and they were on a road with life altering decisions to make which way would they go would they go back to Moab and all of the life that was there or would they make this trip to Israel to a land that they did not know to a God that they had heard about but no provisions they could go to Moab a life that they were very familiar with where there were provisions but there was no God of Israel, or they could take a trek that they were not familiar with, no provisions, a God that they had heard about, that they had wanted to believe in, but they didn't know if they should take the trek. Well, here's what Ruth did. Ruth told her mother-in-law, Naomi, you know what, where you go, Israel, that's where I'll go. Your people, the people of Israel, will be my people Your God, your God of Israel will be my God. I'm leaving Moab. My hope is no longer in Moab. It's in the God of Israel, and I am all in. Ruth said, I'm going to Israel. I'm going to your God. I'm all in. Ruth knew this truth, and this is what we talked about last week, folks. This is the truth that Ruth found out that True hope is always where God is. True hope is always where God is. Can you say that with with me, folks? True hope is always where God is. This is the reality of it. We can go anywhere else. We can look for anything else. But if you're looking for hope, it's always where God is. It's not in Moab. It's not back there in the way of the world. It's always where God is. And that's where Ruth was going to find it. And so in the end of chapter 1, here we find Ruth and Naomi on their trek back 
to Israel, and it mentions, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. And it mentions this interesting fact. As the barley harvest was beginning. So you wonder, what does this barley harvest have to do with anything? Well, we're going to find out some really interesting stuff in the next few moments together. And so here we are in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and I'm just going to read down through verse 12, if you don't mind, and this will kind of set up the whole climate of our discussion here this morning. Chapter 2, 1 through 12, follow along in your copy, and I'm going to read it for you. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch, excuse me, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, this is where the story gets awesome. So fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a great ride this morning. So Ruth and Naomi show up to Bethlehem. They have absolutely nothing And what are Ruth's options for taking care of her and her mother-in-law? Now, I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of the culture in this day, but there's a few different ways that a woman who had nothing could take care of herself in this day, most of which were not 
either culturally acceptable or biblically acceptable. One way that she could take care of herself would be she could beg. She could actually, right there on the street corner, she could beg. And typically it would be something that a cripple, you know, someone who was physically disabled would do. Another thing that she could do would be to sell herself into slavery. Now, that would work for her, but there would be no way that she could take care of her mother-in-law. Then here's a third thing that she could do, which would be biblically unacceptable. However, it would have worked back in Moab because it would have been commonplace in Moab. She could have sold herself into prostitution. And it would have made enough money for her and for her mother-in-law And it would have worked back in Moab. But remember, she had said something, your God will be my God. And so now she's in a unique position. If her God is now the God of Israel, what is she going to do? Her situation seemed hopeless. When all hope is lost, what is she going to to do? How was she going to show that her God was the God of Israel? And here's the big theme of Ruth chapter 2. Lock this one, put it in your mind, put it in your heart. This is the big theme of Ruth 2. When hope seems lost, you ready for this? When hope seems lost, obey God. When hope seems lost, obey God. So say that one with me. When hope seems lost, obey. So the first thing we see Ruth doing when she gets out here. They show up in Bethlehem, it's barley season, and she wakes up the next morning and she says, mother-in-law, Naomi, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go glean in the barley fields. Now you wonder, why in the world did she go gleaning? She didn't glean because it was in vogue, nor because she had this extensive gleaning background in harvesting. I want you to see a passage in Leviticus 19. This is the coolest thing. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 through 10 and here's up on the screen behind me. Here's what it says. This is a provision back in Old Testament times that actually were for people who had plenty, people who owned fields. This is what they were supposed to do For widows and orphans and foreigners, here's what it says. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So here's what God says. If you've got a lot, if you own fields, this is what I want you to do. I don't want you to pick every grape. I don't want you to grab every piece of grain. I want you to leave some of it. And I want you to leave some of it for people who don't have much. I want you to leave it for those who have nothing. I want you to leave it for those who are poor. I want you to leave it for the foreigner. I want you to think about those without. This was the biblical responsibility of those who owned fields. I want you to notice a few things about gleaning. Number one, 
gleaning or going behind the harvesters and picking up the leftovers was humbling. It was humbling. We don't really have an old country buffet around here, do we? I miss that. Imagine being at an old country buffet. <clears throat> You're not a customer. You're not an employee. You're there grabbing the trays off the tables and you're picking food off of it to eat because that's all you can do to survive. Imagine that. Imagine you go up to a table and you say, are, are, you, done, are you done with that? Imagine. And they say, yes, we are. And you grab it and you go over to another table and you start pulling a little more meat off that turkey bone. And you realize that they have a little bit extra meatball still left on the corner of their plate. And, and you start eating. And everyone in that restaurant is looking at you. And they're all there eating their meal and they realize that you're the one that's picking up the leftovers okay so this is what gleaning this is what gleaning is they all realize Ruth is there picking up what's left over this was not a prestigious type of a thing this was humbling number 2 gleaning <clears throat> it was it was lean it was lean. I don't know if you picked up any of the indicators about Ruth in this, but, but it mentions that she went in there in the morning. So she got right up, whoop, and she went out there in the morning. It mentions that she took a little break somewhere later morning, but she went through the evening, verse 17. So verse 7, she was in there in the morning. She took a little short rest in the shelter, probably from the hot sun, Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. This lady probably put in at least a 10 or 12 hour day. This lady trucked it out. She worked so hard and here's what we find out about her. It mentions at the end of the day that she had an ephah which was about six gallons worth of grain. Now, you can kind of imagine a five-gallon bucket full of grain. Now, the deal was, in this account, Boaz took notice of her and started telling the guys, hey, dump a little extra. Hey, cut a little stuff and just put it right there for her. Let's start to shell out a lot, a lot extra for her. And so she actually got about three times more grain than what they normally do because when she came home and showed her mother-in-law, Naomi's jaw just dropped to the ground like, you got what? She couldn't believe it. And this six gallons of grain would probably take care of Ruth and Naomi for about five or six days. But really, what typically someone gleaning would bring home 
would be about enough for two days for Ruth and Naomi. It was about a third of what she brought home. It would be about two gallons of grain. Typically, here's the deal. Ruth would work a whole hour to fill this with grain. Could you imagine that? A whole hour to fill this with grain. It was lean. It was hard work. Here's the third thing. Gleaning seemed disconnected from her biggest need. So if you're Ruth, think about it. I need a man. I'm a widow. I need a man. I need my own place. I need money. And probably the best place for that is in the marketplace. And I'm following Leviticus 19, and I'm out in the field picking up scraps behind harvesters. Doesn't that seem totally disconnected? Now, I don't know what you think, but since I have been smelling diaper fumes from seven children all these years, my mind really thinks of crazy things. And I went back to the karate kid. In 1984, and, and I'm not sure if you even remember the Karate Kid from 1984. If you don't remember the Karate Kid, you just Google Karate Kid. And when it comes up, then you can laugh at me. And there were these phrases. This kid was bullied, and he went to Mr. Miyagi to learn how to do karate because he wanted to defend himself. And so Mr. Miyagi in teaching him karate, instead of teaching him karate, he did a few things. He says, yeah, I want you to sand the floor. Sand the floor, sand the floor. He says, now I want you to paint the fence. Paint the fence, paint the fence. And then he says, now I want you to wax my cars. Wax on, wax off. You remember the wax on, wax? Oh, wax on, okay. So you do remember this. If someone, if you ever hear someone doing wax on, wax off, you just remember they grew up in the 80s and now you know to really pray for them, Okay. Pray for them. They grew up in the 80s. Wax on, wax on. Finally, the karate kid got so upset and said, why in the world am I doing this? This has nothing to do with karate. I'm waxing your car and I'm painting your house and I'm sanding your floor. This has nothing to do with it. And finally, Mr. Miyagi says, okay, get over here. I'm going to show you what everything this has to do with it. And Ruth could be thinking, I'm in a field gleaning. And I need a man, and I need money, and I need my own place. And I'm gleaning, picking up scraps in a field, far away from a man, far away from money, far away from my own place. Why am I doing this? But she was obeying God. And often when hope seems lost, we hear people say things like this. Fill it in. Desperate times call for? Exactly. They rationalize. You know, things aren't going well. I need to take matters into my own hands. 
it's time for me to start forcing the outcome. I need to have things happening now. It's time for me to take control. <clears throat> but for Ruth, her theme was, when hope seems lost, obey God. When hope seems lost, obey God. I'm here in Bethlehem. I'm in a foreign land. I'm widowed. I have nothing. Hope seems lost. The Bible says I can go pick up leftover grain. I'm going to go out. I'm going to wake up early in the morning. I'm going to pick up leftover grain in the fields just like God wants me to, and I'm going to do it with all that I've got from the morning until the evening just like God says that I should. Because when hope seems lost, I obey God. I want to look at our situations this morning in two parts. <clears throat> there's our part, our responsibility, and then there's God's part. There's the outcome. And I want to do it with two different Bible verses that really delineate these two parts to it. So first is a, is a verse that I um, have enjoyed my whole life. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. <clears throat> and there's our responsibility, which is obedience. And notice this verse and how it outlines our responsibility. You can see our responsibility in this verse, it says, trust in the Lord. And whatever we go through, folks, we are supposed to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Notice our next responsibility is lean not on our own understanding. Not, hey, I've got this great idea. But lean not on our own understanding. Then notice our next responsibility, in all our ways, submit to him. So God says, here's your responsibility. <clears throat> Trust me with all that you've got. Don't lean on your thought and your understanding. Don't come up with your own great idea to get the outcome. Submit to me. And my word, that's what I need from you. That's our obedience in our situation. That's just what God asks us to do. And then notice, when we do our responsibility, notice on the other side of the verse, here's God's part of the situation. Our responsibility is obedience. God's responsibility is the outcome. And notice how the verse continues. <clears throat> when we trust in the Lord, when we lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways submit to him, he does the outcome. He will make your paths straight. Often we think, how do I make my path straight? That's not our responsibility. God says, I'll do that. 
You work on trusting me. You work on not leaning on your own understanding. You work on submitting to me. I'll work on your path. That's my responsibility. I'll work on the outcome. You work on obedience. Here's another verse that I love that deals with a very similar issue. It's in Matthew in chapter 6, verse 33. It outlines the very same interchange. Our responsibility says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the context here, he's talking even about like, we have needs, we have physical needs, we have monetary needs, food and clothing and all these things. And he says, I realize that you have all of those needs, but he says, I want you to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, our first focus. God says, I want you to make your first focus my kingdom, building my kingdom. I want you to make your first focus my righteousness, building that into your life and building that into the culture around you. Not making your first focus all of the other things of money. But then he says, you know what? If you make your first focus obedience and my kingdom and righteousness, he says, you know what? Guess what? Here's the outcome. God's responsibility is the outcome. All these things will be given to you as well. I'll step in. God will take care of it. If you make your first focus me, God says, my kingdom, my righteousness, the outcome is my responsibility. I'll make the outcome my responsibility. I'll take care of it for you. Now listen to this. Our problems begin, folks. Listen tight. Our problems begin when we step out of our responsibility of obedience and into God's responsibility of the outcome. Did that connect? Our problems begin when we step out of our responsibility of obedience and into God's responsibility of the outcome. Our problems begin when we try to do God's job for him. Now, newsflash, folks. We stink at being God. Amen? One has said, I've learned two things in life. There is a God, and I'm not him. It's true. Now let's get honest here. When hope seems lost for us, some of our natural tendencies are we panic, we become desperate. We resort to to drastic measures to get our outcome or we'll despair and go through depression and obsess on the lack of hope because the outcome looks poor. And life gets off the rails when we focus on the outcome and not obedience. 
Life gets off the rails when we focus on outcome and not obedience. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever heard this? When people focus on, I want to be accepted by everyone. Have you ever heard that? I just want to be accepted when we focus on the outcome. I want to be accepted. And I understand. And you can see when we're focused on the outcome how all of a sudden we can change in our obedience in order to have the outcome happen. Instead of saying, I need to be a person that God is pleased with and leave the outcome to him. Or the man that says, I want my wife to listen and respect me. And a man that says that can resort to all kinds of things. I heard about a man who was talking to another man at work and he said, He wanted his wife to listen and respect him. And the other man said, you need to go in there and raise your voice and tell her things are going to be different around here. That you're the boss and that she better listen. Well, he went home and he went up to his wife and he raised his voice and he told her things are going to be different around here. He said, I'm the boss and you better listen to me. And after he said that, he didn't see her for a week. And then after a week, he began to see her when the swelling went down in one eye. That was based on a true story. But instead of saying, I want my wife to listen and respect me, say, I need to listen and be a man of integrity. I want my husband to love me, and I realize the ache that's there. But when we start with the outcome, we can resort to all kinds of things that we compromise our life, we compromise our obedience to God, or we've seen people say, I need to get a man, I need to get a woman. And the sacrifice of obedience along the way, in order to get the outcome, instead of saying, I need to be the man, Or I need to be the woman God wants me to be and leave the outcome to him. Or I need to have more money. And how many people have sacrificed their life or their convictions? How many people have sacrificed their families in order to get more money? Or I want more recognition 
for what I do. And ultimately, the great declaration of our being genuine believers, even when hope seems lost, folks, is if we love God and believe God enough to obey his every word, we love him and believe not only his plan to get to heaven, but we love and believe that he knows best for our plan here on earth. It's when our speech, our behavior, our attitudes, our reactions, our habits demonstrate, you know what, God knows what he's talking about for my life here. And I'm going to glean in the field if that's what he wants me to do. And I'm going to trust him for the outcome, even if I pick up the scraps. Because when hope seems lost, I still believe that my best hope is with God. Ruth came over from Moab to Bethlehem and she told Naomi, your God will be my God. Folks, she meant it. She meant it to her very core. And even when it seemed bleak, even when she didn't know a way out, even when hope seemed lost, she obeyed God. She really believed. I want to give you a few things about obedience. And then I want us to all walk out of here challenged this morning. Um, here's a few things about obedience. Obedience shows you love and trust God. Point blank right there. Obedience shows you love and trust God. Here's the truth. We all love something. And God says that one of the highest displays of love for him is obedience and we ask so how so what's interesting in second timothy 3 it talks about the end times and it mentions in the end times it says people will be lovers of themselves and check this out it says they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god and so ultimately when we say god you know what? I love you. I love you more than all of these other things. I'm going to obey you, and obedience shows, God, you are the highest point of my affection above everything else. You're, you're the highest love of my life. God, I, I love you. I trust you. I'm going to do my part of obedience and I'm just going to lay myself at your feet to do your part of the outcome. And folks, I even believe this. I believe, I don't think we can truthfully and fully say, God, I love you and trust you without obedience. 
Obedience shows you love and trust God. Here's number two. This is something that will, will get in your mind and I want it to just stick there and really to work its way into your thinking. Obedience is God's will for your life. This is an interesting thing for you to think about. Some people say, boy, I wonder what God's will is for my life. Or that single person sees the, the man walk by or the woman walk by and they think, ooh, is that person God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Well, I just love this. Here Ruth reads and understands, you know what? God's will for my life is to wake up and go gleaning in the field. Like Leviticus 19 says, so she does it. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Ruth chapter 2. So she goes gleaning in the field. Verse 3 says, So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. I love this phrase. Well, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Gee, what a coincidence. Isn't that something? I wonder how that might have happened. Maybe obedience is God's will for your life. As she was in obedience to God, wow, she just happened to be in Boaz's field. And then if you look down a little bit farther, verse 4, wow, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Oh, just happened to be then, wasn't it? Isn't that something? Just then Boaz showed up. Not the next day, not the day before, just then. And I've been asked so many times, how do I get in God's will? How do I know God's will? Well, the key to being in God's will, I know it sounds simple. It may sound trite. But I believe with all my heart, it starts with obedience. She didn't know where to glean. She didn't know precisely what time to glean. She just knew she was supposed to. And she just obeyed God. And guess what? God worked out the details. And then lastly, the part about obedience, it positions you for God's outcome. And I just want to take the pressure off of you this morning. Obedience positions you for the outcome. Pressure off, folks. You don't need to work everything out. You don't need to command the whole circumstance and make things happen. It's not all up to you. Great news, folks. God can handle his job just fine. Isn't that good news? He does not have a sign on his shop door saying, help needed, inquire within. 
He is very capable of doing his part of the job. He just asks that we do our part. Even when hope seems lost, obey him. Even when it may not make sense, obey him. Even when it may seem disconnected to your need, obey him. Be the wife that you should and obey him. Be the husband you should and obey him. Be the employee that you should. Be the child you should. Be the church person you should. Be the Christ follower you should. Be the cherry festival attender you should. The neighbor you should. The citizen you should. The taxpayer you should. The driver that you should. One person said, when you get saved, the last thing on a Christian that gets saved is his right foot. And I think that might be true. But be the shopper that you should, be the student that you should, that he has called you to be in his word. And we step out in obedience to God, just like Ruth, and we let God do his Even when hope seems lost, when hope seems lost, obey God. When hope seems lost, obey God. Would you say that with me? When hope seems, obey. And let me just tell you two ways that works this morning. Some people think I need to get myself to heaven. If I work, if I go to church, I do enough good I get myself to heaven well folks let me just tell you that's not the way it works remember our responsibility in God's Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sin on the cross when he died the Bible says in John 3 16 that he loved the world God loved the world so much he sent his one and only son to die for us, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Our responsibility is to put our belief, our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. We need to believe that he died on the cross for our sin. We don't save ourselves, folks. We don't forgive our own sin. We believe that Jesus died for our sin. That's our part. His part is the outcome. He forgives. He died for us. He redeems. He saves. His grace covers all of our sin. He gives us sonship in heaven. He gives us a place with him. And so, friends, this whole thing of grace is all of him. Our part is to believe, to put our faith and trust in him. And so I encourage you, don't try to do God's job. Just do your part. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
believe that he died for you. You can't save yourself. Trust in Christ's death. He saves you. And then I want to encourage you, here's the other outcome. It's the outcome of your circumstance. Trust the outcome to him. It's time to express our love and trust to God and leave the outcome of your circumstance to him and focus on who he wants us to be in this situation. And so if you would, would you just close your eyes with me? I want you to think about what that is. What is that? What does obedience to God have for you in your situation today? As a wife, as a husband, as a student, as a child, as an employee, as a citizen, as a church person? When hope seems lost, obey God. What does that look like for you? Some of you may be in a tight spot and you're wondering what obedience looks like in your situation. But you need to do something. Stop working on the outcome and start working on your obedience. Can you start with a prayer of confession to God? And a prayer of commitment to God. That we can get out of the God business and let Him be God. And let's get back into the following God business and living a life of obedience to Him. Would you make that commitment to Him right now? And if you do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to connect with me, a pastor, a staff person this week. Just pull up our website, pull up an email, pull up our church phone. I want you to call. I want you to email. I want you to connect with us. I want you to talk to us about it. Let's walk down this road of obedience. I'm getting out of the God business of the outcome. I'm getting back into the following God business. Even when hope seems lost, I'm just going to obey. And God... Thank you for the example of Ruth. Thank you for her simple obedience, following after you, and just letting you 
determine the outcome of her life. Thank you for being God. In her life, thank you for being God in our lives. We do love you. We do trust you. We beg for your forgiveness when we get out in front of you or when we try to do your job for you or when we don't trust you. Work in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name.